The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. Welcome to this podcast. I am super excited to be broadcasting the first episode ever of this. The point of today's episode is to kind of lay some of the groundwork of why I even conceived of this podcast, where it came from, what I'm hoping to explore in it, and kind of the mental and intellectual background that is doing the heavy lifting here. But before we get into that, I want to introduce an amazing friend who has offered to be kind of a sounding board for me as I explore some of my thoughts. Danica Weger. Hello, Danica. How are you? Hey, good. How are you doing, Luke? I'm well, thanks. I know you're excited for this podcast, so... I am, but I was hoping that you would introduce me as a sometimes special guest so I could make a joke about unicorns. Okay. Well, would you like me to make that no. joke? <laughs> no. I would like to introduce a sometimes special guest, Danica. <laughs> Welcome, Danica. Thank you. You mean like a unicorn? Uh. Google it. Like. <laughs> yes, like a unicorn, okay. I guess. Do you know what that is, though? A unicorn? Yeah. In the context you're using? Yeah. Not really. What? It's like, maybe I should. <laughs> this is like, okay, no. Cut this out. Well, you got to tell me now. <laughs> you can't just not tell me. It's what you call like the special guest star when you're having a threesome. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. Unicorn. The third person is yeah, the unicorn? Totally. Why? Where did that come from? Because they're mythical creatures. Uh, the unicorn, <laughs> tying it back to the liberal soul, <laughs> the unicorn in his book, A Thousand Small Sanities, is the mental image that Adam Gopnik uses to talk about the um, revolutionary reactionary's utopia. It's okay. perfect and non-existent. <laughs> well, there you go. A small introduction to Luke and me. Well, now I have to leave all that in. <laughs> Awesome. So yeah, this is uh, actually the second podcast that I have started. As of recording about a year and a half ago, I launched my first podcast with my co-host David Parker, my cousin, called Really True Fiction. And in that one, which was itself a <laughs> five-year journey to get off the ground, and that podcast, the conceit is every episode we talk about a famous book or movie or TV show or other famous work of fiction. We've done a play, a couple comic books, and some music, actually. And we would talk about what we thought were some of the real-life ideas, thoughts, uh, wisdom, philosophy, psychology, all of that therein. And so that's kind of the uh, context of where the idea of this podcast came out of, because as we were going through and we got up, because we're at about 75 episodes, I think, of really true fiction. Yeah, we got a lot of them. So (laughs) if you're you're already over this podcast, at least check that one out. I've recorded (laughs) real episodes there. (laughs) I would say about, about 30 or so episodes in, I started sensing some themes, some like recurring 
mostly philosophical themes, but also psychological ones that were making themselves apparent to me as I spent more time with these books and movies. And I think it was something like episode 34 or 33. Give um, or take. Something like that. Yeah, (laughs) give or take. We did um, the movie Batman Begins and... I titled that episode, after we talked about it, I titled it The Liberal Conscience, because there was something about the way Batman kind of presented himself in that movie that made me think about the difference between like a liberal temperament when it comes to social problems and a more absolutist one, because spoilers for Batman Begins, but you'll remember he gets trained by Ra's al Ghul in the League of Shadows, and so that's how he learns his skills, and then... He returns to Gotham to protect it and, and help it. And Ra's al Ghul comes at the end to destroy it. And the kind of philosophical difference of opinion between Batman and Ra's al Ghul was like, they both agreed Gotham had problems, but Batman wanted to fix them. And Ra's al Ghul wanted to destroy Gotham and start over. Sure. Right? Like basically kill everybody. And then only from the ashes of that can... Uh, a new city be built. And obviously in an ancient sense, the city is the idea of the society, right? Mm -hmm. Because that was the city states were the first polities that had like a political standing. And so that was like the first inkling I got of like, oh, that's like a, the difference between Batman and Ra's al Ghul is really interesting when it comes to like social philosophy and conceiving of how you want to deal with problems in a world and so I just have over the past year and a bit been just collecting different little strands of data and ideas and thinking about well okay I think Andrew Sullivan wrote a book called The Conservative Soul and uh, recently I think George Will uh, wrote a book called The Conservative Sensibility I was like wow they're ganging up on us now (laughs) (laughs) I conceived of the idea of the liberal soul as all of the things that go into a person's mindset who's like interested in the world, curious about it, has their own passions and endeavors, and is really interested in other people's passion and endeavors and wants to create a social atmosphere where themselves and others can flourish in order to do that. And kind of all of this superimposed on a map of kind of more or less liberty in life, which is why I use, a few people have asked me, why do I even use the tired name liberal in my title? I was like, well, because I think it's a term burst in grandeur and it's so tied to the word liberty. And in fact, the next episode coming out will be on the bedrock text of liberalism on liberty by John Stuart Mill, (laughs) that kind of thing. And so that's a very kind of like brief preamble because there were lots of things that kind of came out of really true fiction that I was talking about. It's like, this deserves its own treatment and expanded beyond simply talking about books and movies and TV shows, even though I want to continue to do that uh, on that podcast and here. And so that has kind of been the catalyst for this idea, which is going to be like some episodes I'll be talking to people about their passions So even though this is the first episode you're hearing, I've got episodes coming down the pipeline with one of my cousins about our mutual love of music. I talked to a friend I met in Korea from England about football, soccer, and like the passion and cultural passion in England for that. 
And there's going to be lots of other ones like that. So it's like, I kind of want to find what people are, if left to their own devices, what do they pursue and why they do that. Then on top of all of that, I want to also do like maybe some with guests, maybe some solo episodes on great works in the history of the liberal tradition. Like I mentioned, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, but a modern resuscitation of Karl Popper and Charles Dickens and many others will be fun and like nerdy for me. So yeah, that's a very broad strokes, a pseudo introduction. Yeah, where you came from. Plus, I wanted to be able to, like I mentioned, it seemed useful to me or, or apparent, probably is a better way to put it, that I had a lot more to say on things beyond just movies and TV shows and books and beyond just fiction. So this I consider to be that kind of opportunity. And um, part of the liberal soul is having an endeavor or a project to work on. And so this one's mine. <laughs> awesome. I think it's really exciting. And I think the timing is pretty cool too. Just back to your old podcast though, like I think Batman would maybe not be something that most people would immediately think would inspire this podcast. Or what are some mm. of the other <laughs> movies or books that got you thinking that might be surprising to people well i think this podcast is a coalescing in a tangible form or at least like an audio tangible form of a lot of the ways i've thought about the world already and just haven't really put much effort or time into like articulating in a coherent sense so like i've always been more open to new experiences than other people i know in a more conservative background, which I was raised in. For example, growing up in the church, I always found myself less having a less visceral reaction to the things people around me were thinking were bad or evil. I was just thinking like, well, what's the big deal about that thing? Sure. <laughs> right? Yeah, so I think that that's like a, it's a, te- there's a temperament thing going on here. And then I guess in a political sense, I feel like the term liberal is just like the most used and the least understood yeah, in the history really... of of political like the obviously it's a it's a word that means a different thing in almost every different western democracy yeah it's almost it's interesting timing because it's almost like you're trying to bring back the term for what it originally means <laughs> yeah, this is like... a this is a reclamation project <laughs> yeah well good luck with that thanks <laughs> yeah no that's really cool yeah and so There's the political angle of like, I think that the tradition of liberalism is one of the crowning achievements of our species, in my opinion. And yet it gets boiled down at this point to, are you for or against universal basic income, right? Right. It's like, it's just everything becomes, if I may, lowest common denominator (laughs) in the conversation. And that is just so boring to me, is the pigeonholing of um, a political ideology based on a simple word when the more I've studied the history of liberalism and considered its great thinkers and its great purveyors, I have realized this is certainly, (laughs) liberalism is definitely not conservatism, but it's also certainly not leftism either. Yeah. And I think it's worth reiterating that point in every generation because in a very sincere sense, it, it is liberals who are most interested in liberty, aka freedom, and figuring out how to best preserve that 
for an open society so that people can, again, get back to their first-person psychology where they can flourish and grow and become self-actualized, if we want to use a Maslowian term, right? But you asked about other, like, inspirations. Like, obviously, John Stuart Mill is probably the OG liberal in the modern world. There's works that go back to Montaigne and even, like, I can sense some of that stuff in early works of like Lucretius and Democritus um, in the scientific sense back in ancient Greece. But I would say Charles Dickens is an amazing example of a of a liberal in the sense that I mean it, um, which I suppose I will define at some point, but don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually reading Middlemarch right now by George Eliot, and that was her pseudonym, or was it nom de plume? I don't know. I don't speak French. But her name was Marian Evans, and she was a great liberal thinker, too, because she talked about how freedom for women has to start in the mind and in the bedroom um, before anything else. And so, you know, they're writing in the 19th century. And so yeah, that's big the, ni- the rise of the novel, I think, coincides with a lot of the great history of liberalism, because uh, liberalism is being able to remove yourself from your own perspective and adopt the perspective of others. And that really hadn't happened at a popular level before the novel. And so the great contribution of the 19th century is the novel and uh, Britain and Russia and France, among obviously many others, but great thinkers in that tradition. And then I actually have a couple episodes coming out on this book because it is the proximate academic work, I guess, or like intellectual work on this is that a couple years ago in 2019, the Canadian writer Adam Gopnik published a book called A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. And in it, there was just so much information and philosophy and figures in the great liberal tradition that I knew about, but I didn't really know about why I knew about them or why they were so important or what the ideas were and how to differentiate them from other social or psychological philosophies. So, like, there's been so many ingredients in the stew for so long that I just felt like I'm at an age now in a, in a Ralph Waldo Emerson sense. It's, it's uh, time for me to till my own soil <laughs> with my own hands, you know, that kind of thing. That's awesome, Luke. I think it's really exciting. And I think it's an interesting time to be starting a podcast about this. Like, I, I think about a few, maybe like five or six years ago, that term was kind of a dirty word in many <laughs> circles. Liberal was a dirty word, you think? Well, I, I think it. I think it's worth defending, obviously. Mm. And I think your podcast is timely, <laughs> <laughs> giving it a good name again. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why I want it to be two-pronged or like dual approach in that I want the intellectual and the philosophical and the psychological basis for it. And I think it's really important. And again, like those names I mentioned, John Stuart Mill, George Eliot, but also like Karl Popper is a huge person and uh, someone I want to talk to you about often on this podcast, George Orwell. George Orwell is a huge intellectual bedrock in liberalism and and specifically like (laughs) anti-totalitarianism. which I would submit is very liberal. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but also one of the great things Gopnik talks about in his book is that liberalism without liberal heroes or liberally, liberally minded people, I think his quote is, it's not just hard to love, it's actually impossible to see. So one of the great things about, one of the things that I think makes my position in this so strong is that I can actually just point to people in the world and say, well, they're being a liberal. 
That's right. what they're doing. Like he talks in that book, he talks about Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and Charles Dickens and George Eliot and George Luz and um, Baird Rustin. Like he's pointing to all these people in history who are participating in the tradition of liberalism in what they're doing in the world. And so that's why I want to talk to other people about what they're doing in the world, because you can't have liberalism without vivid liberalism. Right. Like you need actual physical real world examples because it's such a I would argue it's the most of the world reality based political philosophy. And so to actually have people coming on the podcast and talking about their passions kind of concretizes what I'm talking about in a way by it being more than just like an abstract opinion. Like I'm hoping to bring people and their minds and their hearts out to show the next chain in the tradition. Yeah. Of what they're doing, right? And and their freedom to do that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And so I was thinking that I think this will be a good way for a lot of people who perhaps even haven't even thought of themselves as a liberal or identify with that word mm. in terms of meeting people through their passions and more about the traits or characteristics that they embody along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's one of the great insights of liberalism, I think, is that you don't have a philosophy without the people, right? right. Like, it's, sure. it's, it's, um, it's born out of humanism. So you can obviously make philosophical arguments in the tradition of liberalism, and John Stuart Mill does that better than anyone. But he only can do that because he's talking about other human beings in his society, and even in On Liberty, he uses really concrete examples of what he's talking about and why he would defend them, even though they're not of his belief system, let's say. Uh, and then, like I said before, with Charles Dickens, like he really brought to life the people suffering in his novels at the hands of things that people with power never would have even really thought about before, personalized them, gave them names, gave them families, gave them histories, gave them all of the things that people who could make social reform possible also experienced at a human level. So one of the things, one of the jokes I've always made in my life that has this intentional ring of truth to it is like, I was a human before I was anything else. So whatever social role I'm ascribed to, like there was a, I, I remember one summer I was a supervisor at a camp and one of the other counselors who I was supervising got sick or got hurt. I can't remember. And I showed a lot of care just kind of naturally. I, I have a sympathetic bone in my body, it turns out. And she was like really, it, it seemed strange to me, but she was weirdly heartened that I, a supervisor, would show so much care to her, Aww. right? And I was like, well, I was a human before I was anything else. Right. And I think that's like the kind of ethos of the liberal soul mm-hmm. is like it's human first. All the other social overlays are useful for their tasks at hand, but if it needs to be collapsed back into the nucleus, it's human first. Mm-hmm. And so... That also shows the kind of like multi-layered thinking that needs to go on to inhabit. Another thing the liberal soul is comfortable with is not straight edges and kind of muddied boundaries and messy corners. Yeah. Being able to navigate between them based on what the situation calls for. I've always get a, gotten a kind of kick out of people who need black and white, need an answer right now need predictability need predictability and need or who get impatient mm-hmm. impatience to me is, is hilarious and so i troll them if they're my friends and i am professional if they're our colleagues <laughs> kind of thing uh if you can believe it 
yeah, these are all just I different elements. A, I think that that one is really interesting. And I think there's a lot of connections there with the Stoics. And I'm wondering if that's going to be something you're going to be talking about on your podcast at all. Well, for sure. I mean, I want to explore all kinds of philosophy because that's uh, been a nerd feature in my life and, and probably the most reading I've done. But you asked me this off air a couple of days ago and I was thinking about it. And like, I feel like, yes, there's definitely some sort of connecting tissue between what I'm calling the liberal soul and stoicism. Yeah. But I think the term in the note that I gave you was I wrote psychological resiliency. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's exactly the same as stoicism. How do you see it as different? Maybe it's just in the terminology, but because there's an ism <laughs> at the end of stoicism, I see it yeah. as really this kind of abstract, I guess like in the sense that liberalism is such an embodied philosophy, it's a lot easier for me to visualize psychological resiliency than it is to visualize stoicism, okay. right? Like it's a lot easier for me to visualize an 11 or 12 year old kid learning to be a little bit more mentally tough in like a soccer game, right. like they get knocked over. Or they get fouled and it's not called by the ref and they have a decision to make. Do I complain? Do I get angry? Or do I get back into position, work a little bit harder and make up for it with effort Mm -hmm. and learn how to overcome the unfairnesses of life that come my way? Like, it's just a lot easier for me to visualize that than to say to that that kid while they're doing that situation, hey, just be stoic right now. Like, it's not like stoicism is meaningless. It's just, I think, more abstract. Yeah, and I think there's a difference between like capital S stoicism or small s stoicism. Um, sure. Like I have an interesting story from maybe five days before my son was born. I was in the hospital and my midwife saw me reading a book on, I think it was How to Be a Stoic. That's mm. what that book's called, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just weird timing. I just happened to be reading it near the end of my pregnancy and my midwife was like, you know, you don't have to be stoic through this, right? <laughs> like, just indirectly thought that it yeah, was right, about right, right. the impending, like, child. Well, you can see the connection in her mind, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. But it's just interesting that people see it that way mm-hmm. in the in the bigger sense. I don't know. Yeah, so in that formulation, I would definitely be much more comfortable saying the liberal soul, with its emphasis on psycho- psychological resiliency, is more in line with small s stoicism. Not mm-hmm. capital S stoicism, yeah, right? I would agree. Because again, it's very embodied. So whatever sense of stoicism being embodied, yeah, it's very similar, I think. Yeah. But stoicism also, I'm just totally free associating on this or, or riffing, but like to me, when I hear stoicism or the stoics or the stoic school of philosophy, I think about like older people who are kind of realizing the inevitability of tragedy and horror and sadness that comes with the territory of being a human so that's definitely part of the liberal philosophical framework but i think also psychological resiliency is also about growth mm-hmm. like there's a big time growth element that is necessary so like even something like cbt which i know you are involved or or yeah. have experience in right yeah. cognitive behavioral therapy to me, that's like a little different than stoicism, mm-hmm. but it's still more in line with the liberal soul because right. it's like trying to help someone and it's trying to, part of helping them is realizing that they need to be able to handle the world in a moment to moment. So I guess I feel like stoicism is more of a reflective attitude mm-hmm. and the liberal soul 
has psychological resiliency in the moment and knows that it's important to grow right right so it's like i don't know i mean i'm splitting a hair here but never to be would you use the never word, to not do that would you <laughs> use my, the word grit well only <laughs> only i only don't want to because it's been bastardized by pop psychology <laughs> yeah true but. yeah but grit yeah grit but i i guess i like the word psychological resiliency more because i always want to bring it back to the first person sure experiential nature of growing because I think it's really important to a liberal soul always to be becoming and never being, to uh, put it as anti-platonically as I can, because mm-hmm. I'm pretty not platonic. Yeah, there's another term that comes out of, or idea that comes out of psychology called post-traumatic growth, mm. which I think is really interesting as okay. well. And that's like more serious traumas that you right. experience in life, but being able to come through it. Sure. I mean, it's described in the name, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's kind of relevant as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess like the philosophy that's in line with stoicism is like the liberal soul knows horrible things are going to happen to them their whole life, no matter what, mm-hmm. even even in the most, and we're certainly not there, but even in the most charitable society, you're still going to deal with natural disasters, disease, heartache. Um, yeah, and being able to compare it into the bigger picture of mm-hmm. life, and then and then once it occurs, not having it defeat you, yeah, like actually being able to live it and go through it in an embodied sense, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's uh, if there's a distinction there to be made, I tried to make it. So there were also like a couple other features that kind of came apparent to me during really true fictions run. And I sent you, I typed out like a couple paragraphs of this concept I've called highest common denominator. I mean highest common denominator as a kind of a direct correlate comparison to lowest common denominator. And, you know, we all know what that uh, entails. It's uh, all you got to do is watch broadcast television commercials and you will be saturated with lowest common denominator portrayals of humans basically lowest common denominator just being targeting messaging communication that is meant to be understood by everybody so that it's very stupid and very (laughs) shallow and impossible to miss the benefit of lowest common denominator is that no one misses your message and the downside of lowest common denominator is that it is quite annoying to probably about 80% of the planet. (laughs) (laughs) And so I have just been, there's very little that annoys me more than mass media or commercials or even like corporate meetings that are insulting my intelligence and talking at a very base level. And so I assume that there are lots of other people like that in the world. And so I have cheekily constructed this uh, opposite heuristic that I hope to be the abiding one of the podcast when I talk about books and talk to other people is what I've called highest common denominator which I know there isn't a mathematical correlate (laughs) in in the sense that there's for lowest common denominator so it's a direct comparison to lowest common denominator as the antidote to it and it doesn't imply what the opposite of lowest common denominator would imply which is that I don't think I don't think that there's like not that you could ever measure this, but I don't think that there's necessarily like every single individual has the same numeric value of what they can do, right? Mm-hmm. If Carl Sagan has like a thousand of science communication, I'm at like 50, right? <laughs> so it's not like I have the same. Probably of, like a 10. There's not. Me. It's not like I think the same 
people have the same number of their yeah. upper upper le- uh, potential on any given trait. But my my thinking in this is that everyone has their own highest level, and I want to by default assume that level of ability and competence in a person when I go to talk to them and I treat them in that way. So basically treating them at their highest potential as a default, as opposed to treating them at their lowest level as a default. I think this is a really important idea about your idea of highest common denominator, because I think upon first hearing about this, some people might mistake it with elitism or which isn't a a bad thing either. Mm. But I think what you just said about assuming the best in people really gives people back that power that actually like it's it's the opposite of that because you're assuming that people mm-hmm. have a certain baseline that yeah I yeah i mean really important i think if i was if i was going to give it like a mental image if you think about like a mountain lowest common denominator assumes that the person's always at the base of the mountain and and the mountain being their ability and highest common denominator just assumes they're already at the top mm-hmm. they're already at the highest point where they can have the broadest view of the vista and have the most the best ability to uh, best of their ability to talk about all that and i think the consciousness raising that can go on is that if you treat someone like highest common denominator uh their quota quote unquote at their summit they'll realize they're not actually at their summit yet Mm -hmm. there's higher to go there's further growth to be had there's more to learn yeah and that is something that doesn't happen to a person if they're held to lowest common denominator standards. Mm-hmm. Only if they're held to highest. I mean, it's it's how kids learn in school. Is like there's pedagogical research on holding kids like to the highest level of their ability, but not quite above it. Yeah, like, like finding that sweet spot, right? Development. And I think, yeah, the charge of elitism is understandable given that approach. I guess. There's a couple things I'd say there. One is that I would want to differentiate elitism and superiorism. Yeah. And I think elitism in its original sense of like just being elite at something is fine. But it's supposed to have the sting of arrogance and self-importance that I think superiorism actually is the better term for. And I don't think superiorism is a fair charge to lay at the feet of HCD, highest common denominator, because... It doesn't assume like any moral worth mm-hmm. because it, again, it doesn't. Another term I used, I think, in the notes I sent you is that potentially another good term for highest common denominator is radical individualism. Yeah. Like treating every single person as best as you can based on how well you know them at the highest level that they are capable of. And in my head, when I say that, it's like, well, who the fuck are you, Luke, to, to do that to someone? Like, what sort of pretentiousness is that? And I say, fair enough. Uh, all I can say to that is that that's how I would want to be treated yeah. by strangers, by other people. I find it insulting if I'm not. Ooh. And I would, I'm only paying forward the way I would want to be treated. So I mm-hmm. guess I'm passing some sort of golden mean test here at the top. And I think to, to ward off the charge of pretentiousness, I say I feel like I am always learning things from other people who whether it be new words, new concepts, new ideas, I I am just as, I have as much skin in the game to be highest con- common denominatorized <laughs> as anybody else. And I guess thirdly, every act of creation is an act of pretension. Without acts of pretension, we wouldn't have any art in yeah. life. And so I think that's a charge I can swallow for well, I think um, that's important what to, I know I'm actually to trying to do out. with this. Yeah. Maybe think of a couple things and maybe think of, 
of your boy Hitchens. And I think <laughs> you're telling me one time, maybe it was you or maybe I heard in an interview or something with never dumbing down his vocabulary yeah. to meet the needs of other people right. and just having high expectations that, you know, you got to keep yeah. up, which I think is great. But what is it about the mind that makes people squirmy about this? Like we don't, we don't treat sports like that. We don't treat music like that. Like, what is it about the mind that makes people uncomfortable with talented or, or yeah. highest common denominator thinking? Yeah, I mean, like, I can take a few stabs at that, but it is interesting how it seems to be one area where we're, like, a bit um, afraid to delve into that. Whereas with sports, for example, I mean... I think part of this, not the whole thing, but I think there's also a cultural element here for us. I think that there's something really grating in the Canadian identity to be better than other people for lack of a better term. Right. We're actually, I, I think Canadians are actually quite a, um, a vol in a sense of voluntarily, a, a voluntary pseudo collectivist culture. We actually don't, we're very laid back, very happy to live our lives and I think there's there's a stigma around someone who speaks out or is brash or has a like a, 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 is a little bit disagreeable. Um, we have a word for that. It's called American. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> and so I think that that has some of the stigma from a Canadian perspective. Yeah, which is understandable, but also I think kind of silly. Yeah, because obviously there's all sorts of different kinds of Americanism. 100%. Uh, so the ones who are the loudest make the news, maybe. But from a more human perspective, I think ego and resentment are really hard things to let go of. I think for a lot of people in the world, seeing excellence in any form is immediately a mirror. We're, we're all so solipsistic in this way. This mm -hmm. is one of the kind of... Yeah, it's a good point. ...truisms of life. And this is something David Foster Wallace, another great liberal, in my opinion, has talked about, about like how we're born with the default setting of the world is experienced by me. Everything is around me. Um, everything happens to me. I'm the center of the movie of my life the whole time. And so like the idea of being able to move beyond that when everything other people do, like, so to try and answer the question in this sense, everything other people do in the world that has some sort of excellence attached to it is immediately reflected back on us in the sense of we're watching our movie and we're not the hero anymore. Right. And I think that that's a big thing for people. I know it was for me and it still is. It's something I have to fight with. It's like, uh, isn't there a real big fish song? We hate it when our friends become famous. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's a song title. It probably is a song title, but yeah, that's <laughs> So that's I think lyric. ego and resentment are actually much more valenced and present elements in human life than polite society would ever want to give it credit for because it's obviously an ugly urge that we all know that I think we all have experienced. Also, it's not as taboo as it might seem. Mm -hmm. I just think it's taboo in the institutions it's taboo in bureaucracies because almost by definition bureaucracies don't work if you're actually good at stuff <laughs> like you actually have to be kind of very middle of the middle of the road to be functioning in these massive and bloated administrations so there's a there's a kind of financial incentive against it um, in the it, with the rise of a bureaucratic culture, which I think North America has uh, over the last sixty years just 
exploded in. That's a different topic, and you can probably so <laughs> hear my biases well, do, there. <laughs> but well, how do you how do you think is the best way to engage people with other people to encourage highest common denominator? Well, I hope it's what I'm planning to do, which is talk about the things people love the most, mm-hmm. because that is like I don't think it's a mystery to anyone. Like we've all seen someone come alive mm-hmm. when they're on a certain subject, right? whether it be music, sports, art, scuba diving, uh, rock climbing, I don't know, like <laughs> yoga, right? <laughs> like there's some, everybody almost, I, I, I maybe have met stretch. a couple. That's a stretch, that's a stretch, Everyone's got something, I think. Yeah. And so I think that's the best place to start for highest common denominator. And highest common denominator thinking elucidates and elicits sincerity and genuineness out of people because if they can trust your intentions then they can reveal maybe more vulnerable parts of themselves based on what they love because what we love is a little bit vulnerable and sincerity is the antidote to cynicism Mm -hmm. and i think cynicism is one of the things that kills the world in a existential and artistic sense and i think nothing breeds cynicism more than lowest common denominator. Sure. I think lowest common denominator is the mother of cynicism. And so hopefully highest common denominator is the abortion of cynicism. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but I so- hope I hope what is being communicated in a lot of these things that I say is that to me, the liberal soul, why I even called it the liberal soul, is that it all comes back to the first person psychological take on what it is to be a human. Yeah. It all comes back to the existential, as Adam Gopnik writes, liberals love laws so they can spend more time engaging in things that have nothing to do with the law. Mm -hmm. The whole point of freedom is that we can go discover what it is to be alive. Right. That's Um, cool. I like that. The whole point of being pretty hard-nosed in our politics is that we don't have to deal with politics, ideally. And I think that's one of the sicknesses of our time is that politics has become the new religion. The decrease in the belief in God, I think, has shown an increase in the belief of politicians or or hatred of politicians, right? So anyway, that's, I hope, apparent, is that it goes back to one of the earlier points, like liberalism is meant to be an embodied philosophy, which means it has to be a first person philosophy, which means it has to do with real humans in the real world dealing with reality and not whatever theological or platonic ideal any sort of demagogue would have us believe in. So when you first sent me that document over about the idea, I was really thinking about Anthony Bourdain a lot, actually. Okay. And one of the... I mean, he's just one of my favorite people to learn more about. And I was listening to an interview with him one time where he's like, how do you find the best places to eat or find the people to talk to? And he just says, I get really drunk with locals. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And like, I know you, you've been a traveler and you appreciate getting drunk with locals from time to time. Mm. <laughs> but um, I think that's just such a beautiful part about humans and coming together and sharing experiences and i think he's a person who really embodied a lot of those traits that you're talking Mm, about yeah and i think actually the the opposite uh is true in a lot of 
cross-cultural interactions and maybe not outright expressed as lowest common denominator, but almost like in an attempt to not be elite over somebody else, they kind of assume a lower baseline. And that's actually more offensive than mm-hmm. assuming people can keep up with you, which mm-hmm. it's proven they really can. And Yeah. No, I think that's totally right. I was thinking about this the other day when I was reading a different book for this podcast, is that the liberal soul is interested in what unites humanity and brings us together regardless of gender or race or ethnicity or culture or belief. All of those are secondary to the human. Again, human first Mm -hmm. in the liberal conception of reality and ethics. And I think one of, if not the greatest uh, moral and intellectual sickness of our time is an insistence on how different we all are from each other. Mm -hmm. The different group identities being paramount to existence and that being where we need to focus the most. And this is stuff I talk more when I talk about Adam Gopnik's book, but like one of the biggest differences between the leftist and the liberal is the liberal still emphasizes the individual and the leftist emphasizes the group. And I just think that that's a non-starter because... (laughs) there's lots of reasons but the most salient one is logical like where does the group begin and end there's no good line to draw there yeah now as as the liberal soul i'm fine with the messiness of borders (laughs) but i don't give any valence to those groups in the first place (laughs) unless there's like a specific person being injured that we can tangibly help through some sort of reform or law or rational compassion as someone once talked about earlier today to me in a text message paul bloom what you have friends yeah. in high places well uh i just i i let out a rebel and yale he came by so yeah i i agree like travel and and associating and just discovering what it's like i know you've traveled too but i lived in south korea for three and a half years and one of the lasting impressions I got from that place is that fundamentally, even though it's such a different culture, people in Korea are just the same as people here. You know what people do on a Sunday in Korea? They go play with their family in the park. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. You know what they do on a Friday and a Saturday and a Monday and a Tuesday? (laughs) They drink beer with their friends, right? Yeah. Like there's anyone who's traveled discovers how similar human beings are and I think people who say that we are different fundamentally have to quote a great line from a 2010 movie. They just have an insidious agenda. (laughs) (laughs) That's for my NTF listeners. (laughs) So do you have any other questions about highest common denominator? Yeah, I guess my biggest ones already asked are about how do you encourage an environment where that's able to flourish, I guess, really. People are able to... Which I think you talked about. Well, you have to build trust with people and it's trust. You show vulnerability, I think, in a sense, in a more kind of clinical game theory. Uh, They did, I can't remember the study, but there's like computer simulations run on what is the most stable, long-term version of reciprocal game theory. And it turned out that you, and this was a algorithm or a simulation that did this, the most stable, long-term, uh, reciprocal form that was that worked between potentially otherwise hostile groups 
which any encounter with another person has the potential for hostility, is you initiate a kindness or you initiate a vulnerability and then you just give back whatever the next person does. So if subject A initiates a kindness and subject B returns it with a with a cruelty, then subject A does a cruelty back. Mm. But if subject A initiates a kindness and subject B gives back a kindness, then subject A gives a kindness again. And then subject B gives a kindness again and back and forth. And that's kind of what we mean by reciprocity, right? right? And I think, as by the by, on large scales, no society can be stable unless it's built on a reciprocal model. Mm-hmm. No matter how communitarian our emotions want us to be, that's not going to work at scale. Mm-hmm. Again, that's a different conversation but it's like the beginning of that is what's important so i think if i'm subject a i initiate the kindness by telling anecdotes that make me seem vulnerable or make Mm -hmm. me seem or or that i'm interested sincerely and not just i don't have like a different agenda when i go talk to people i actually want to know yeah you're acting in good faith exactly yeah like i said before it's the antidote to cynicism and then like there's a couple other topics that came out that i'll eventually want to talk about like the concept i think of um vital masculinity which I think needs to be talked about more, but basically it's like, and that'll be a different episode, but the Aristotelian mean of masculinity between toxic and non-existent right. <laughs> masculinity. I have lots of, I have some more nerdier things about like philosophy of language and how we use language, but like in a more for the liberal soul sense, I think George Orwell has lots to educate us on here, which I'll talk to you with sometime because you're the uh, you're the liberal soul Orwell correspondent for, I don't know for why. good reason. For good reason. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. But I also sent you some notes on like other traits I feel like are part of the liberal yeah. soul. And do you have any? Did you have any thoughts on those? I do. Yeah, I was really interested in the first one you put was feels the pull of the world, mm. but is inspired by curiosity, and I think curiosity is perhaps the most important trait in a way. I don't know if there's a reason that came to mind for you first when you're writing this list or it's just kind of random, but I think that idea of being able to change your mind, being open to receiving new information, what are those experiences like for you in terms of like when you're able to change your mind on something that you really held deep inside you and um, I think you're going to have a podcast about this at some point, maybe something big in your life. Oh, well, but... yeah. I mean, for sure. I grew yeah. up in a, in the Christian faith and in a religious household. Yeah. And as I became a teenager and then in my 20s, I just lost my religion because there was no good evidence that it was true. <laughs> <laughs> and I think at the time, I was like, well, how does everyone not know this? But in retrospect, I realized people, I think many people don't don't believe in their religion because they think about it as the truth. They think about it as what it means to their life, which is another wrinkle and interesting thing about the human condition, which will always be of interest to the liberal soul. Mm -hmm. Well, I just think there's a difference between being curious, but being Mm. genuinely curious and open to being, having your mind changed on something. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Like, is there a distinction there or do you think that's just like a scale of curiosity? Sorry, like the difference between being curious and changing your mind? Yeah, or like being fully able to 
to change your thinking completely on something. Well, I actually don't think human beings can radically change their minds on things. I don't actually think that's how it works. I think it's actually kind of a meme. It's good branding by like the skepticism movement or something. It's like being open to change your mind. Right. I think what actually changes people's minds is in line with the philosopher Hegel, who the part of everyone knows about Hegel is thesis, antithesis, new synthesis, which becomes new thesis. It collides with more. And I think actually how people change their mind is on Monday, I hear a, an argument for or against my position that makes me think a little bit more about it. And then on Thursday, I hear this other lecture where this other point is made and it adds to the thing that I heard about on Monday that I think about a little bit more. And then maybe three weeks from now, I have an encounter with a person who really exhibits or embodies an ugly thing that the person back on the Monday talked about that I didn't mm. have a physical image for. And so then we get these kind of like really fractured puzzle pieces that after months or years we look back on and think, yeah, all of that just kind of becomes overwhelming. So like there's a historical momentum and I don't mean that in a metaphysical sense. I mean that purely in a psychological sense. Like I think that's actually how people change their minds. I think it's a slow process over time, which makes me emphasize the bedrock liberal philosophical point of the paramount need for free speech and freedom of expression and freedom of opinion because beyond it being necessary for the psychological well-being of people who think differently than than the majority let's say mm -hmm. it's actually free freedom of expression and freedom of opinion is actually the thing that makes us be able to learn and grow and become and, and progress and discover new things about the world that we never thought about before and so that's a bedrock for the liberal soul is the insistence on the on the master value of free speech and freedom of opinion mm -hmm. and anti-censorship i think that ties in a little bit with your point in the document you sent me about some of the traits you're talking about about when uh, being able to determine when mercy or justice is necessary mm -hmm. i think is really interesting because I, I think a lot of people perhaps maybe like near this kind of i don't know what i'm saying i think a lot of people have the justice piece down but not necessarily. Well, they think they do. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. But it's not balanced out with the mercy piece, which I think is right. interesting. So just in terms of you talking about freedom of speech and free expression, I think mm -hmm. that's important. Well, again, what I think is totally missing, I think there's lots of things missing, but I'm not an expert in all the things that are missing. But one thing I think I can talk to is one of the biggest things missing in what we might call partisan leftist or conservative opinion in the mainstream, what's missing in all of that is the awareness of human psychology mm -hmm. <laughs> and like that people's minds are frail and we make mistakes and we sometimes say things with only half of an idea of what we're going to say. And we don't even know where we're going to get to until we finish speaking. And so the just kind of, Hyper judgment, I think, is um, short sighted and not really like fulsomely taking into account what it is to be a person. And that's, again, what I insist the liberal soul does is that it does its best to always take into account what it is to be a person. And that fundamentally means a subscription to fallibilism. 
everyone can be wrong. Mm-hmm. There isn't a single almost chimpanzee of us that has a claim on infallibility, the right opinion, the best opinion. It doesn't exist. Any censorship is one monkey telling another what to do. And it always has been and always will be. Well, unless there's AI. <laughs> but that's a different that's a different conversation. Maybe when there's AI. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I mean, this is actually something David and I talked about. I think it was our Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe episode, but like how one of the one of the enduring positive elements of the Christian philosophy that's been in Western culture is the concept of forgiveness. And how there's a very kind of like socially positive path to forgiveness. And I think that's a great project. It's it's part of probably people like me's job to think about how do we entertain a kind of robust sense of forgiveness in a in a post-religious world because it's an important human attribute mm-hmm. an important human relationship concept that is i think needs a different defense in a godless world yeah which i believe the world to be uh but that doesn't make it easy but again the liberal soul doesn't need it easy <laughs> give me the give me the batman harder way of rebuilding gotham and not destroying it yeah but i think the self-awareness piece is super important to being a liberal soul yeah for sure one of my favorite writers ever is ralph waldo emerson and he talks a lot in his essays about the importance of self-awareness okay here's a here's a liberal version of this the people that i think in the world that i see at least in the in the mainstream as hyper self-aware are uh Matt Stone and Trey Parker. Right. The South Park guys, right? They make fun of themselves just as much as everyone, and then they make fun of everyone, and then they remind us that they know what they're doing, and then they a little bit later remind us that they know what they're doing. (laughs) Then they they look like they don't know what they're doing, and then they again, just through their prose and their writing, they remind us that they know what they're doing. And uh, again, that's an embodied example of real people in the real world, which I can't emphasize this enough. The whole point of why I think liberalism is the best political philosophy is that it's the only one that is only interested in reality and not what we want it to be. (laughs) It's real people doing real things. Yeah, and sometimes that illusion is shattered of what we think people should be doing, and that's part Mm -hmm. of it too, right? Yeah, I mean, I think... (laughs) Just as an aside... Plato fucked us. Plato <laughs> fucked us so hard with his concept of the forms and the ideal state. It's been what influenced the worst parts of Christianity in a theological sense. And it's just warped the minds even of people today who believe in true essential categories that exist in some sort of ethereal realm that are true and perfect for all of time. And we just show bastardized versions of that on earth. Yeah, There's but no such thing as that. That's easy, right? Like, that's what yeah. people like about it. It's like, doesn't, you don't have to think harder. So, the kind of cheeky way I put it is that I don't think there are such things as metaphysics, but I'm perfectly comfortable using the word metaphysics because I think it has linguistic utility. <laughs> 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 but that'll be a different yeah. episode. That'll be a good episode. So, do you think any, I think it's just really important to keep separating 
political parties or political ideology uh, from your idea of liberalism. Do you think there's any politicians that embody any of these characteristics? I'm sure there are. I don't know about them because politics in Canada is, it's like beyond a sedative, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Like (laughs) if you want to go to double sleep, (laughs) listen to some sort of politician talk in Canada. It's actually probably part of the problem. (laughs) That's why they can slip in really heinous policies or something because no one cares. That was actually the kind of the theme of the David Foster Wallace book, The Pale King. People if they want to do terrible things, they slip it through boredom, not secrecy. <laughs> That's really true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, politicians? I don't know. I don't know enough about this. I'm not an expert in the political field. I feel like my... It just doesn't seem possible. My bias is like no one of that like level of... Even if people are that way, they can't be that honest. Mm-hmm. And there's like a selection pressure in politics for people who are willing to be a little bit more egotistical and a little bit more ruthless and a little bit more self-aggrandizing mm-hmm. or careerist. And I think that's too bad because I'm of the opinion that social change fundamentally has to be grassroots. I feel like I have the temperament and the nerve to be the person standing in the church being annoyed at the congregation, not the preacher, sure. for allowing the preacher to lie to them yeah. kind of thing. I think that this is a different topic too, but I think that there's like a couple different kinds of, I don't know what you even call them, freedom fighters seems like a cliche, but like people interested in the emancipation of the human mind and the human spirit. And some of them talk like to Bob the- Marley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, some of them talk to the powers that be. Yeah. And some of them talk to the people who, for one reason or another, still are voluntarily enslaved in some form and says, well, no, break your own chains, that kind of thing. And I don't think we're going to get better politicians until we have a more hard-nosed, self-aware, and highest common denominator electorate. Nice. So I see that more as my prerogative Mm -hmm. as opposed to like talking to politicians yeah i want to talk to the voters <laughs> even though i'm not the liberal voter per se <laughs> that'd be a really boring name for a podcast are you eh? even a voter i you know what i actually voted i voted in the last Did two you really? i voted in the I've, I've just moved back to bc but i used to live in alberta for five years and i i voted in the most recent provincial election oh, and federal election i'm very impressed but this probably won't surprise you i didn't vote for either the conservatives or the liberal party right. in either election. So who knows what that means? Go green. Is that what no, that I means? No, I didn't vote for them either. <laughs> the provincial, I voted for the Alberta party, which is a kind of like more liberal soul-esque type of party. And then I think in the federal election, I just hated everybody. So I voted for like the libertarian party, right. I think. So <laughs> because you know what? There's a little part of me that understands a little part of Alice Shrugged. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a majority, but it's it's there. <laughs> so what are you most excited about for your podcast, Luke? Hmm. I think two things, if I have to f- put them into words. The, the more kind of like solo or intellectual stuff is like I'm really looking forward to challenging myself to really try to understand in this context, in this lens, some of the great thinkers that have come before me in this tradition. So I mentioned his name a couple of times, but... 
a real Promethean in this in the liberal tradition to me is Karl Popper. He was a scientist, but he was a philosopher of science, and he wrote this great tome called The Open Society and, his en- and Its Enemies. And I just think like being able to have the confidence to tackle those kind of books to talk about and how they apply now is really exciting to me. And then I'm sincerely interested in the passions of other people. Like I think to me, one of the things that I feel so disheartened by often in social life is how often people aren't telling me really about the things they care about. Mm -hmm. Like I think so much of small talk or polite conversation is around it's it's weird like no one it, i i've spent so much time around people where the whole group no one is actually talking about anything they're interested in mm-hmm. it feels like they're talking about what they think the other person thinks it's they okay for them about. to talk about yeah. right it's like there's exhausting. this, there's this weird projection that goes on yeah and i'm looking forward to just giving other people on the podcast total and effusive and unregulated permission to cast all of that aside and talk about what they really want to talk about Mm -hmm. i've already learned you know a couple episodes i've done just like i mean relatively minor things but things all the less that i can put in my toolbox for who knows what future i mean my my uh my little jokey quote is everything is practice for something else right playing chess and i'm no good at chess but i always try to do at least two things with every move (laughs) Something for defense and something for offense, right? Right. Yeah, I don't um, know anything about that. Yeah, that's true. Danica <laughs> never has played chess before, it turns out. I know. Out. Luke just found that out about me, but if there's any uh, any teachers out there. <laughs> <laughs> or every book I read, I enjoy it for the experience, and it adds another little bit into my intellectual digestive system that becomes my social and moral and intellectual muscles. You know, and that's... That feels good. Yeah, and I just think the liberal soul is hopefully going to be resonant with other people who, you know, there's this great line from uh, Henry David Thoreau, a kind of protege of Emerson, and he wrote Walden, the great uh, transcendentalist handbook. I think it's attributed to Thoreau. Most men live lives of quiet desperation. Their songs left unsung in their hearts. Hmm. And I guess I just feel like the liberal soul is the person who wants to sing the song of their heart and wants to create a world where other people can do the same thing. I don't want to wreck the beauty of what you just said, but if anyone out there knows Luke Mason, he definitely sings every song that's in his heart. Fun to make karaoke. Well, actually, if it's Hungry Like the Wolf, I guess that'd be the song of my stomach. Is that what that's about? Well, he's hungry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but no, it's about, uh, like, I'm pretty sure it's a song about sexual satisfaction. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's kind of the impetus of the liberal soul in this podcast. I think that's probably a pretty good opening salvo into the uh, internets. So I just want to say thanks, Danica, for thanks, Luke, indulging me here. And you will definitely be a guest on the near horizon here. I mean, I'm happy to be your Jamie, too. I don't I don't have to be the guest. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to call you young Danica. <laughs> I feel like that is not the right time era to <laughs> using that kind of terminology. 
<laughs> Are you calling me old then? Like, I don't think there's a winning scenario here. Uh, I'll call you contemporarily aged right. to me, Danica. Okay. <laughs> so, if any of the things I talked about today and Danica talked about are interesting to you, I hope that you stay tuned for future episodes of this podcast. And in the meantime, you found the liberal soul.